Our podcast, the Kosher Sommelier Podcast, is sponsored by Liquid Kosher. Liquid Kosher is a curated wine experience for those seeking quality kosher wines that are vetted by wine experts. That wine expert being me. We have relationships with family-owned wine producers around the world, our partner winemakers, and we are sourcing excellent wines that come direct to consumer through our website. The best and the most exciting feature of Liquid Kosher is our Cellar Wine Club, which is a quarterly subscription that opens the door to rare and limited production, limited allocation wines. Join us, join the club, get a club box. We will feature some of the world's most exciting and interesting kosher wines that are produced only by family-owned wineries that are really punching above their weight. So I invite you personally to come and enjoy the Liquid Kosher selection and the Cellar Wine Club. Liquidkosher.com. Please check us out. This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. I am super excited and I got to say also very appreciative and, and humbled that you're taking the time today, Dan, because whenever I, I think about my own start in the wine business and how I learned how to taste and appreciate wine, I mean, it is inseparable from the experience that I had working with you when you know we were just babies in the industry and doing all kinds of really menial work and learning stuff and you know tasting after the shift and and you know pulling bottles from the shelf and and just uh wondering what happened to them the next day and and uh i remember i remember your flash cards for your advance test and and then i mean it was just it was just crazy so i have to introduce you dan pilkey master som I look up to you in a big way in the industry, and I'm really happy that we're chatting today. And as I've seen your career and your success, I've just been uh, super proud of you and super happy for you, and you totally deserve it. And I know that you've worked super hard for it. Um, and the, you know, the master stuff doesn't come easy, but you know, you <laughs> you, you were practicing early on for for busting your butt to to get to that level, and. And uh, obviously, when you work hard and you have dedication, it pays off. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Sorry for a super awkward and long-winded uh, introduction. No, that was lovely and appreciative and honestly, um, I'm really flattered. Uh, you know, I, w- I won't say you're wrong on any of those fronts. It's been a long journey and it's been a really beautiful one, though. And I love every single person that I've had a chance to interact with and study with, meet, taste with, etc. along the way. Um, it has contributed to who I am today. So thank you. That's so nice. So we met in San Diego, um, where you used to live. And like everyone who moves to San Diego, you move away. <laughs> like all of my friends, whatever. I'm the last person in San Diego. It's pretty depressing. So yeah, we we're working retail. Um, uh, you were doing like three other things at the same time. Uh, restaurant, <laughs> wine growing, wine making, yeah. uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, I guess what I wanted to sort of chat about today was, um, you know, just a couple things. 
your progression in the industry, just kind of, you know, how one thing led to another, how you um, advanced up the ladder as you did. And then maybe later we'll talk about like, you know, tasting wine and, and how people can really develop that sensitivity and that depth, not maybe just to, to flavor it, but just more like contextualizing contextualizing wine and that kind of stuff, which I, which I always talk about. So, um, yeah. So once you, uh, start us off. Well, my journey was, um, from an early age, uh, essentially I was a little cellar rat and, and, and vineyard slash restaurant worker at a winery in California. And that was at the time, uh, not what I was going to do or be (laughs) wine was kind of the furthest thing from my, you know, uh, soon to be future, but I got a really good appreciation for the industry and kind of what it takes to go A to B and how to make great wines. And so after college and just throughout my San Diego career, I started to gravitate more and more towards it while just kind of paying my way through school and and, and working a, a, a restaurant and hotel gig. So it became this quest and passion. I found it to be very interesting. And a little bit of my ADDHD would come out because it was hard to stay focused on one thing specifically. However, I found wine to be able to hit on so many different topics throughout the world. Um, You know, when you look at it from production, there's clearly a business side to it. There's also a very true science application to it. There's artistry that goes into just blending and making. And then there's this historical side, which is just super fascinating. So whether it was books or people I talked to um, and just actually being social, sometimes wine is that lubricant. So at the end of the day, it just seemed to always be around me and and within my my sphere of, of interest. And I just continued to follow it wherever it may take me. And to your comment earlier, I probably had my hands in too many cookie jars, right? I was trying to learn production while working a restaurant floor, attend maybe a class or two here or there in school, and then, um, you know, go, go to retail as well. And um, I will say as frenetic as it is, it did help me learn fast, maybe even fail fast, as they say. But that was really the catalyst, you know, and just that thirst for knowledge overall. Um, I ended up leaving San Diego for a hotel restaurant job to do my own program to be the author of a, a soon-to-be two-star Michelin restaurant and hotel, which is very illustrious in, in Chicago, Illinois. And that was a big catapult for me. Um, previous, just having a little rounded experience here and there was great, but to kind of cut my teeth on something that I could call my own was really important to me. So it, it drove me away from San Diego and into Chicago. And then from there, uh, as many people know, Chicago is just a wonderful food city and and culture. And it was also the time that Michelin was going to be launching their their guidebook in Chicago Um, and being a part of that in the restaurants um, really did make a good little name for myself here and got me in touch with a lot of great people and friendships and thus um, ended up kind of pursuing the, the final stage in that Master Sommelier in 2018. And then just moving on now to some consulting work, some work in Miami, um, doing some online retail and sales and some seller acquisitions and liquidations too. So just a lot of different moving parts to it. 
and the ability to stay afloat, to be successful, to be autonomous um, within the beverage industry, specifically with wine, has been really uh, a joy. And that's an awesome thing. That's fantastic. So now you're a partner in a uh, winery direct retail site, Scoperta. Yep, called Scoperta. Um, an awesome idea that many have tried. No one's really done um, as good a job as we have thus far, even though we're young, but really connecting consumers DTC. So right to the winery in which they want to buy. And then ultimately, um, not that we don't like distribution companies, but we also feel that distribution companies can be a limiting factor in the products we see in the marketplace today. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's not because they choose not to, but I do think that the consumer should have more choices available and thus be the judge, jury, executioner for those said wines. So this platform would allow them to shop and shop um, as robust as humanly possible. So we will be domestic only and we will feature wines from all around the United States. So we're trying to give a little bit more love and light to maybe a couple areas that are on the rise. For instance, there's even a couple hot spots in Texas, which are actually quite good. There's a lot going on in New York and the Finger Lakes specifically. And then even Michigan has uh, what I consider to be an, an amazing one winery right now, but it really is the cat's meow. And, uh, and of course, you have Oregon, Washington, California. So just bring in a bigger conversation to light with regards to the American terroir and what's in our backyards. Yeah, I've had a couple wines recently from Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and uh, New Jersey, some wild stuff. And I was like drinking it. I'm like, I would not have guessed this is from Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, you, you know, this is as much as anyone, but, uh, you know, tide rise, all boats float. Technology has definitely been a, a huge assist uh, in farming and the ability to farm cool climate, Midwestern to East Coast agriculture is starting to really take shape. And I think there's a bigger conversation now more than ever about non-vinifera species in the ground. So looking at American hybrids specifically of agriculture, viticulture that are producing some really interesting wine. And you have uh, sommelier and wine buying from New York State, which is rather robust, very big popular names in our industry who support it. And you see them at restaurants, you see them in hotels and, and retail shops. So it's gaining a lot of momentum. I just think it's an exciting time. So that is one way in which Scoperta um, kind of pushes that conversation and allows consumers to tap into that. And you're still very much in touch with the high end, um, doing some buying for a, uh, a club in Florida. Yes. And what's going on over there? They're, it's like a, uh, you're like a seller master for a, uh, it's a car club, right? Yeah. Fast cars and great wines. You know, it's, it's definitely <laughs> the, the, the good playground for a lot of people that are automobile enthusiasts, but essentially it's just south of Miami in an area called Opalaka. It's an amazing track that uh, can house your car and do F&B events, uh, big corporate events where you can drive, learn how to race. And it's more than just a left turn at NASCAR. Right, it kind of follows this kind of Formula One driven style. It is wicked, and a lot of people are really excited and pumped for it. It's a private club, uh, which has its own up and downs. But at the end of the day, the biggest asset to it is that it's it's encompassing, you know, of that food and beverage side. So we have an amazing chef. You can come have fun, bring the group, bring the family, etc. 
and then have an amazing meal and then go do Miami nightlife stuff, you know, after, after event. So, so got a lot Porsches, of and, Porsches and Palm Rolls in, uh, <laughs> in, in Miami. <laughs> you know, it sounds like, as a matter of fact, Andrew, a good idea for our next event. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take an invitation as a commission for uh, the, the name. There, hey, amen. Amen. So yeah, you know, your wines are obviously on the list there. Um, there's, all sorts of members that obviously are part of it, and thus the the wine program needs to reflect those type of tastes and profiles. And so um, we have a lot of high end wines. We also have some just good daily drinkers. Essentially, I put together kind of a fun wine list that uh, does give a little nod to some of the things that are not going to change your life, but they're just fun to have with food, and you don't have to overthink it. Um, but of course, I have the ones that have many zeros and commas next to them as well. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> something for everybody. People, yeah, people need what they need. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, but it's interesting you mentioned that because you know I think that it's good to hear from you that which we many of us know a wine doesn't have to be expensive to be good, and not all wines that are expensive justify the price. But it's good to have value at every price point, and uh, sometimes it's what's on the glass and not on the label. Yep. You said it. I spent a good portion of my life and my study, you know, portion of the career chasing those classics and chasing these um, producers, let's say, that everyone says you have to have. And it's equivalent to almost climbing Everest and then getting back down and then saying, well, then what's next? Right? Yeah. And now that you've done that thing, and you can say, I've had it, I understand it, I liked it, maybe even bought one or two. Um, does that satiate and, and feed your passion, your true passion for what this be- this industry is all about, what this beverage is? And sometimes the answer for me was just simply, no, it doesn't. I checked it off a list and that was great, but I don't really find myself being in love with it, that's all. So a lot of people that are in pursuit, whether they read and study, I see them chasing the same. And they usually come to a conclusion later on, just going, it's great, but it's not really what it's all about. Many people would say, it's all about the the context of it, right? Who was I with? What was I doing? What was I eating? Where was I at? What point in my life was this? And can I really attach that to this, this memory and say, I'll never forget it? And some right. wines you can, um, but some wines you have to make that moment. You know, regardless exactly. of how expensive it is, you just make the the moment. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying before. Um, you know, you you try the wine and then you're like, okay, well, what else is there? Now water. Now that I checked that off the list, you know, what do I do? A lot of folks in the kosher community um, got turned on to wine by trying like an epic, you know, vintage, you know, two hundred dollar Bordeaux, and then would go to the store and buy another $150, $200 wine and say, wow, this is really good. Um, I love wine and I love wine because I try these like, you know, okay. Like if you try, you know, Classe Azul, then maybe you'll like tequila, but you know, it doesn't mean that, (laughs) you know, if if you try like the creme to the creme, like doesn't necessarily make you a lover of the entire thing or even knowledgeable. I, and so my response to people was like, I think that the, the, the more natural or, the more authentic process would be, I mean, just from my own point of view, like if you can buy 10, you know, 10 wines at 10 to $20 a bottle and try them all and figure out which one really speaks to you or which one is like the one that tastes like it should be 30 or 40, 
that's like the process of developing wine appreciation more so than just splurging and trying something that's super expensive because chances are if it's that expensive it's going to be you know more likely than not pretty decent so what do you think what what should people do who are like getting into wine um uh, that might reflect your own experience of of learning like what what's the strategy here to really understand wine tasting I really liked to spend a little time prior to the purchase experience in the book or a television documentary, uh, whatever you want to call it, but just the learning of it. So I always felt that if I was going to travel to a region and, and taste the wines, that I would love to do a lot of the research beforehand. And it would make my trip that much more enjoyable and, and kind of digestible about what I'm really taking in. And so I like to do this. Let's say that on the radar is going to be German Riesling, you know, something of that, of that uh, extent. Look at some of the published articles, pick a couple cool maps, look at the region, do a little bit of homework, and then um, maybe write down and make a few notes about what areas you might want to taste and purchase from. And then when you do get those wines, you know, those stories or the vineyard site, how it's arranged, where it sits, um, some specifics about how those wines might be made, really start to fall into um, into clarity. And if you give yourself some good ta- context and education behind it, then the money's better spent. And I think that it also means when you do drink the wines, you yourself have a very good canvas to say, you know what, I get it but it's just not my style or I get it. It's exactly what I thought it was going to be. And I really like that. (laughs) And for that reason, that's going to be now something that I don't have a problem either buying when I'm out uh, eating, when there's a a markup on wine, which is, you know, in this day and age, we got to take that in consideration. Um, And even when I'm going to share it with my friends and family that I can share something and I can even talk a little bit about it in case there was a question and not feel, um, I think in this industry, sometimes people feel very scared. You know, they feel like there's, it's an insurmountable topic almost where I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to sound foolish. And for that reason, I just wouldn't do it. In this case, I, I say the opposite. Do that little bit of homework, go buy something fun, take a look at it. And if you want to trade up eventually and, and invest more money, maybe go to a 30, 50 or $60 price point, at least you don't feel so jaded or let down if that wine isn't going to live up to its expectations, right? So you can kind of start small, but that that preview process, right? That that research process, I think is really fun and I love doing that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a couple of recent experiences come to mind that sort of play into that whole idea. One thing is that a lot of folks I know bought like a older an older wine from a certain region because the kosher wine market is so small. It was an older wine from a specific region. And everyone's like, oh, this one has a special designation. It's older. I'm going to buy it. You know. Meanwhile, an extremely similar product was was and has been on the market you know, the whole time and nobody was buying it. But they slapped a new label on it. People tried it, myself included, and were completely underwhelmed because the expectation was off what they were going to get. With some regions, especially old world, you know, Italy, Spain, et cetera, like, as you know, you don't have to swing for the fences to get something that's like incredibly well-made and thoughtful and, and interesting, you know? Thank you. You do not. It's so, I love the word you just used too, because I have 
often said this is one of the few industries I think where like the wine experience and shopping and such can be both the most underwhelming and overwhelming you know uh, product in in our purview today it's crazy um, and it's what frustrates a lot of people sometimes that's that's an easy one right yeah there's a big disconnect between like what you think you're gonna get or what you need to spend or whatever and the other experience that I've had like lots of times with people is people spending on a nice wine and being in a social situation like a tasting or whatever and you know the host or whatever says oh this is so good and everyone's like oh this wine is so good you're right and then privately they're whispering to each other i didn't think it was that great like i don't <laughs> see what the big deal is like you know everyone's always talking about this label but i don't like it and what you're saying is you have to have some some confidence or at least some comfortable being uncomfortable uh and saying you know what you like what you don't like yep i would say to the exact point i have seen and dealt with collectors mainly who put a huge, you know, blue chip on a certain producer. Let's say it's Domain Romanaconti or any of these big names. And they go all in. They're gonna sit they're gonna sit there and, and spend 35k or 50k on a case of wine. And they have saved it. It's in the cellar. It's taken a couple months even to get this to fruition. And maybe six months go by and there's going to be a special event. And they open said wine. And now the expectation has gone from maybe here, which was already high, to way up here. <laughs> and they, they pull the cork, you pour yourself a glass, and you go, it's good. You say, well, of course, it's, it's good, huh? It's real good. That's it. Okay. But that there it is. It's just Pinot. <laughs> it's from France and it's just good. I mean, like, did it fix your cataracts? Nope. Do you have less gray hair? Nope. <laughs> um, are you a better driver? Nope. <laughs> so we, we have to not forget that it is a fermented great product and it can be very, very enjoyable, but it will not do any of those things, right? So Yeah, don't... you heard it here. You know, it's just <laughs> wine. <laughs> it's just wine. So at the highest levels a... of wine appreciation, it's just wine. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And the the difference I will say that people have to watch out for, unlike art, where they make the sizable investment and they love it. You get to look at it every day <laughs> as you walk down your hallway or in your house or wherever. Sometimes wine, once you drink it, it is therefore gone and it is bye bye. <laughs> right. Um, well, you're saying before you, you create, you know, bigger than the wine itself, you create that that moment. And this is, I guess, why you're saying it's so important. You got to create that moment. You got to set it up with the people, the place, the occasion, et cetera. I mean, it can't always be um, the book sideways where, you know, you're sitting in the, in the Jack and crack or whatever the fast food is, uh, <laughs> you know, having your, your 45, uh, I think it was a 47. It was two different Cheval things. In the, yeah. And the, in the, in the movie, it was um, a 47 Cheval Blanc. I think in the book, it was an 82 Latour, mm-hmm. um, which when the book came out was a 20 year old wine and now is a 40 year old wine. Not but my still. favorite Latour. 86 was the jam. <laughs> 86 is for you. There you go. Oh gosh. It was fantastic. That's one of my favorite first gross out of everything that I've tasted side by side by side by side by side. 
gosh, I, I like, and, and this is, again, this is what it comes down to. This is exactly my point. They're all first gross and nobody would dismiss the idea that I would actually drink any one of them any given day. Sure. But when I put them side by side, it's the expression of Latour that I find the most beautiful. I don't dislike a Margot or an Oprion, but when I look at that winery's depiction of what that Cabernet says, for me, I think the Latour is what, what calls to me and what has my name written all over it. That's what I enjoy. And, and that's, that's a very and personal that's, thing. You know, yeah, and that's absolutely – that's fantastic because you know everyone has to know their own taste. And it's not like you're going to say, okay, well, now I'm going to drink it every single day. But, you know, I mean, if you could, you would, I guess. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a point where, you know, you have to follow your taste and and uh, and just go for it. What what was the biggest like me kind of alluded to this, but, you know, what was the biggest wine bummer in terms of the tasting? And and, uh, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I worked a uh, a sommelier job in a very high end um, resort and somebody came in and bought a domain Romanicanti. And it was, you know, the classic Latash, you know, the, one of the best you can get, arguably maybe RC Romanicanti, but needless to say, it's very expensive and beyond my budget as a, you know, floor working sommelier. So anyway, there's wine left over. The gentleman was very, very gracious in offering us samples, which um, I could probably look at him now and say, why were you wasting that wine on dear old me? I mean, I, did, I didn't deserve it, right? I'm I'm just this I'm not even a an apprentice Jedi Knight yet. I mean, come on. But <laughs> you know, he did, and that was amazing. So we go back in the cellar and we're all huddled around and we got the bottles, a little bit left, and we all take some sips. And um it was just not good. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> how else we could have said it. Now, upon further review, um in the in the penalty box, you know, uh in, in the NFL instant replay. Uh, instant replay it was a challenging vintage. It wasn't the best that, you know, that winery could have probably made in, in a couple decades. However, it's still the wine and it's still very expensive. Um, and so it was one of those moments where I just looked at it and I go, am I missing? I, I even said, I think some to the extent of like, am I like not, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking to my senior, of course, who's the wine guy. So I'm like, am I not getting it like what is what's going on here is there supposed to be this much of this or is there supposed to be more fruit like what am i supposed to be getting like what am i missing and he also agreed that this was not great now it was not corked it was not you know baked the bottle was sound it just did not in my eyes as i look at um i don't know a couple months of rent for this <laughs> one this one bottle it, that wasn't it, right? I would rather take the rent. So for that reason, um, it was a little bit of a of a letdown, and I was sorely, you know, grieving and, and and just not happy about it. But I think that also just drove me to understand more and keep on doing the research and figure out, you know, what's available, what's out there, all the different ways in which Burgundy operates, which is a another conversation in itself. But yeah, I think to our point earlier, just just because it has that reputation, whatever brand it might be, whether it's Louis Vuitton or Armani or whatever the brands are, doesn't mean you're going to look great in that suit. And it may not mean that you like that purse. That's all. For sure. It's good to know, you know, why you don't like something also, you know? Oh, it's most the, definitely. 
I um, I usually find that some of those questions when you're at a table, right, in the restaurant or something, I'm trying to probe a little bit into what the the, the guest might enjoy or what they're into. Um, I love to ask, is there anything that you can tell me that you strictly did not like? And sometimes those answers, if they are there from the guest, are very telling um, that they might, they might not like really extracted high, you know, colored and dense wines. They might like something more elegant or indeed they don't like tannins. Um, they don't react well to that bitter stringency and that kind of chalkier mouthfeel and palate. So therefore, let's look at something different. So yeah, a lot of times it's what they don't like that can be very, very telling in, uh, in wine drinking. Okay, so you were studying for the Master Sommelier certification for years, and there is the uh, the tasting portion and the uh, theory portion. So it's like two different tests and, and service. Just and service, too. yeah. So okay, so the advanced you did a long time ago. Correct. I passed in two thousand and eight. Yeah, so that I remember those flashcards for the. Um, I Jeez, just people. People ask me like, "Are you a master sommelier?" I'm like, "No, man." I'm like, "My because you pushed me to do this when we were in Bevmo." That's um, right. I got the certified exam level, and that happened to have been the last time they offered um, certified because they split the intro into two um, levels. There was like the basic one where it's like right. just right. they take your money. <laughs> and there was like another one that was like they take your money again but you get like a little bit more you get a couple right? you get a couple extra books yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then uh <laughs> it's true right and then but it's all good i regret nothing from that then comes like the real the real stuff at the advanced level so you did advanced and there's a ton of memorization and service and blind tasting correct totally totally yeah, a lot goes into that. The advanced level, like the jump, right, from that introductory certified into the advanced is a pretty big bridge to cross. Um, for that reason, there has been a number of things the organization has done to uh, essentially maybe warn students about in terms of just getting them ready and, and letting them understand what's expected of you in the next levels. Um, and then the same could be said from the advance of the master. Um, it is also a, a pretty big bridge and there's a lot more uh, kind of breadth and scope that you have to account for. So, um, yeah. It's a phenomenal amount of memorization and knowledge and understanding and, and not to mention the tasting and service for the, um, for the advanced. And then to even sort of narrow that down and, and to go even deeper at the master level, I mean, that's why there's only a handful of people who even bother to do it. Correct. I would say, Andrew, that the, the crazy part too is that um, this industry has been evolving at a really quick clip and pace for the last couple decades. And it just seems that every year there is a new area maybe of production that's you know coming to the surface um, there are new states doing new agriculture here in our backyard in America. Um, there is a lot of uh, science and tech that is just going into it. You couple that with you know tariffs that we saw during the Trump administration. Um, craziness. I mean, absolutely, there's always something. So in terms of looking at topics, essays, 
memorization, you know, just things in general. What is this? What is that? There is just no shortage. And inevitably, the the the, the boxes of notes and flashcards just continuously grow. And it almost seems insurmountable. As a matter of fact, I would say that my best advice to students of the game and to those that want to get involved was just the sheer organization of the material. It helped me out immensely in how I organized myself and what kind of buckets or baskets I put things into. And that way I had this kind of like Dewey Decimal System, and if you will, this kind of catalog of things. And that made it, um, it made it uh, digestible and easier for me because it, yeah. it just is, a, it's always evolving. Um, you got to know about the producers. You got to know about some of the, the, the terms and glossaries uh, of certain countries when they reference these things, you have to know about agriculture, viticulture. So farming, um, and how do you separate these out that way you understand them? And, and then of course, how they're applied. So, you can take one producer's tech sheet and start Googling things to the cows come home. I mean, there's just that much that goes into to the wines these days. One of my it's one of my things I tell people all the time. Have you ever been to a winery's website and downloaded one of the tech sheets from their Pinot Noir? And can an average consumer look at that and go, so they did the cluster what? What's a whole cluster of fermentation? Like, what are all these things? What do they mean? And how is it applicable to the final outcome or taste that I am getting from this product? And tech sheets are good in identifying what we did to it, but they're not very good at signaling why we did it and how it's going to affect this product. That's a big disconnect. Yeah, you got to explain all that stuff and not only explain it, but contextualize it in terms of why they did it and why it's relevant to the consumer. So um, I think a lot of people are stuck with the, the belief that at an advanced and master level, you have to just know like vineyard names and, and the winemaking process and this kind of stuff. But you have to know all of that plus uh, be conversational in basically the wine business, current events regarding wine, industry trends. And then, of course, a whole separate animal, which is, you know, the 12 or 14 official step process to opening and servicing a bottle of wine and and. And man, has that changed that, that, you know, from the, uh, is that process evolving or is it becoming more relevant, less relevant? It has, and not to get too, um, too, too political in a way, but the idea that women are always served first or, um, women have to wear certain clothing in the examination process has shifted dramatically. So I think the, the old guard, if you will, of fine dining rules and regulations has definitely changed a little bit more. And how do we include that kind of um, uh, kind of newer inclusion and diversity discussions into wine service and thus um, the beverage industry and food and beverage industry? So yeah, it has changed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just I sometimes since remember that I catch myself like not putting a cork directly on the table ever, like at home. Right. And I, I just catch myself, like just put it in my pocket or put it on a plate. Is that kind of stuff still like a thing or is that, uh, it's still like- a thing. Yeah, no, it's still a thing. The funny <laughs> one would be like, if it's a twist off, do I present the twist off cap to the guest? <laughs> you know, uh, and it's a valid question. Like, is, are they going to look at that? Is it 
relevant and it, it kind of has like, yeah, it is. It's part of the service and just saying, this is not my product. You purchased it and I'm going to serve it to you. I'm going to give you all the things that you want to look at, sniff, smell, touch, whatever. Um, and I'm going to do it as professionally as possible and, and hopefully have a conversation. Why does Henschke Hill of Grace come in a screw top or exactly. a vino lock, right? Like why don't they use cork? You know, it's a great conversation, but as a sommelier and you're ordering a thousand dollar bottle of Shiraz, might want to have that answer prepared, you know? And um, <laughs> I also would say what I had the most embarrassing moment of my life uh, being a sommelier and working where somebody ordered a Screaming Eagle and the Screaming Eagle bottle was roughly $6,000 on the wine list. And I thought I just hit the jackpot. Here I am like, you know, Lucky's number sevens in Vegas. This is great. I make commission and I'm so excited. And I get to the table and it's a lot of his friends. So I think it was six or seven people total. We're all going to share this wine. And he just looks right at me and goes, go ahead, tell him, tell him the story. And I am like a deer in the headlights. Okay. I am in my twenties. I do not drink Screaming Eagle on the regular. Um, I did not buy the wine for this property. It's kind of inherited. So I don't know. And I don't know about Helen Turley and the, the the family behind Screaming Eagle and the history of, of what makes this special and where they're at and who's next door to them. But I'll tell you what, I did my darndest and I had to say that I didn't know, which was the truth. I couldn't lie. Um, but from that day forward, it made me just, you, you better know those stories. You better understand why a product might cost that much money and what might make it special. What's the story? Um, what are you going to tell the guest? You know? So anyway, I have been there. Yeah. Is that, is that something that, um, is part of the actual, I mean, that's like an intangible that makes it an experience, but is that something that if you were getting like a service service exam for a sommelier test, like would they say, would they give you a wine and say, Oh, like basically sell us this bottle type of a thing. You better believe it. You better oh, believe yeah. it. Oh Yeah. They've done so much, and not to get too specific into examination, you know, things because it does change year to year. But there's been years where there's like a featured wine, and part of the service is you have the name of it, of course. But if you don't know anything about it, you're going to be, uh, you know, a deer in the headlights. So yes, the ability to have those at recall, and and even the experience as a working som or whatnot to say. Oh, I've had that. I, I bought it for years. I've actually been to the winery or something like that, where you can you can really kind of say something from a personal experiential um, level uh, is the big difference in that exam. That'll catapult you above perhaps the rest of the field. And so you'll look like a, a superstar. Wow. Okay. So you take all three portions at different times. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in, in today's examination, if it were, um, which wasn't when we were younger, but mind you, Andrew, back in the day, uh, <laughs> we took all three levels in one week. So it was basically kind of a five-day budgeted exam, um, and each day would be something. Uh, you might get a break here and there just to account because there's so many test takers, and it's very, very time-consuming to offer these exams. Um, today, what you have to do is pass the theory portion first and foremost. And once you do that, you can then move on to a future date, which would encompass the practical as well as the tasting. And then once you finish those two, 
uh, you can move on. Now, if you do not finish um, anything within a three-year time period, uh, you could be asked to take a couple-year break, and that has happened to students before. Uh, they just say that you know if you're getting three cracks at it, you're not getting through. There's a a, a potential reason that you should reevaluate. You know what you're doing, how you're doing it, who you're doing it with. Um, maybe there's personal stuff, maybe not. So it can be tough for some people And life always throws curveballs. So it's just not, sometimes it's just not fair. <laughs> um, right. there's been a we lot of horror through, stories. Yeah. yeah. And it's just not anyone's fault necessarily. It's the way the world spins. And, um, that has kept people from getting through the other side. Um, I'll say it absolutely hundred percent. How many chances do they give on a specific, uh, portion of the exam before you can't take it again well usually that magic number is is about three yeah right yeah i mean it's, uh, doing it all in one week probably is a uh, you know extremely rewarding to get it done but it also sounds like it's like if doing an iron man followed by the bar exam followed by you know f- flying into outer space it's crazy it's a crazy week yeah, I remember distinctly because I, I, so I took the introductory in 2003. So I was a mere 23 years old. Um, and I passed in 2018 as a, you know, a, a finally. So, you know, 15 years all in. And I roughly had about six attempts at the master specifically. So it's been a long time. But during those six attempts, uh, when you do it all together, to your point, like the Iron Man, you are simultaneously trying to do your theory, which is just some rote memorization, but also it's all verbal. So I would routinely have my wife, um, maybe even at some of those times, she was not my wife, my girlfriend, giving me these call and respond like a jazz number. You know, She's saying one thing, I'm listening, I have to respond. It's no longer written. So it's a different way you look at the material. And you have to be very cognizant about, are you hearing the question correctly? And then after that, um, you're trying to do your your practical. So do you have all your tools? Do you feel good about answering some questions about those producers and servicing the guest and doing wine, champagne opening, decanting, things like that? Have you been practicing? Have you been spending time uh, with that type of like hand-eye coordination? And then simultaneously, again, you're needing to be on the spot with your tasting. You need to be calibrated. You cannot be stuffy. You cannot be sick. You cannot be tired, uh, jet lagged. You need to be um, the most precise you can possibly be on the tasting of wine. And that might even include taking a break from drinking wine, right? And, and giving yourself some ample time to just digest everything in life and just be zen and in the moment. Um, different strokes for different folks. I've seen both sides kind of pass. So it depends on what works for you. Um, for me, I was tasting every single minute until that exam date and, <laughs> and making sure I was calibrated. So that was my success story. Uh, some people do take time off. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's so interesting. I can't really think of anything. I mean, maybe you know, special forces or whatever, but like <laughs> where there's like an intellectual component, a sensory component, a tactile component. Very much. I mean, it's really overwhelming. 
it's very rare in that, that they do call it like the hardest exam in the world and, and such because of those reasons, because you, you exactly hit the nail on the head. It embodies these disciplines that are quite different from one another. And uh, for that exact reason, you know, you, you have to really own and master those before um, you'll find success. Now, you know, even the sun shines on the dog's butt. I get it. Maybe you get lucky one day and you just get the wines that you know. I mean, at the end of the day, there's millions of wines out there and maybe they poured you some that just speak to you. I mean, maybe that's your jam. Maybe you're the Syrah, you know, Shiraz Whisperer and sure enough, that's one of the ones in there. And so you're just rifling these things. Um, but it's not always going to be the case because the, the, the test shapes uh, and uh, is shaped differently every year. The wines are different. Questions are different. There's no uh, rote uh, structure about it whatsoever, which makes it very elusive. So that's one of the contributing factors into the difficulty of it. They don't put in like like random stuff. Just I mean, yeah. There's no gotcha wines in there necessarily. Is there? I mean, there's. It's going to be like you know, typical from typical region. Just there's so many of those that you have to just know them all. There's only been a handful. Yeah, there's only been a handful that I can remember where we got the flight and there was a different wine. And in this case, it was a dessert wine. And we previously had not had seen a dessert wine. Okay, so it was new. And when we tasted it, they don't give you a heads up. They don't tell you, you know, anything. So you taste it and you kind of go, oh, boy, it's sweet. And then you start going, what am I going to talk about? How do they want to hear the structure calls and some of the descriptors? Because again, it's all verbal. And that was a tricky one. And then when we finished the exam, which I did not pass, of course, they look at me and go, well, you should be familiar with dessert wine. you know." And it's kind of like, well, okay, uh, I will go back and do all you know, Madeira and Port and Sauternes and you know, Corte de Chambre and Bonazo and all these things. So just – in the moment, I don't think we were prepared, but that's an example of it. Other than that, there's been very few curveballs. There's been a curveball that I can uh, speak to, which is really funny. Uh, in the service portion, they said, you own a restaurant, and these are three Chardonnays that uh, are a potential for like a by the glass. And could you please taste them? They're all the same grape variety, um, but would you just please taste them and tell us what you think they are and which one would be best for your program? So I taste them and I, I go, well, these are all Chardonnays. Great. I pick up number one and it's clearly like a California style. Okay, great. Pick up number two and it's a little delicate. It's very nice. And I'm just like, oh, that's it's, it's pretty good, but it's really lean, you know? And I'm like, it's got to be Chablis. So I'm like, there's my Chablis. And I pick up the third one and it's relatively neutral. It was very nice and pleasing. It was Chardonnay, but not too much oak, not too much butter. And I thought, Oh, this is kind of like a Merceau-y, Chassagne kind of thing. Um, I like it, you know, and I say, there it was, Chassagne Malroche, you know, something, something. And the guy looks right at me and goes, well, that was Yellowtail. And I can't <laughs> wait to tell them that you think their Yellowtail is Burgundy. Um, but thank you for that. And so I, Yellowtail, the $7, is- uh, $6 <laughs> Australian uh, yeah, that yeah, uh, you buy at every uh, Rite Aid or, or CVS or 7-Eleven or whatever. So here I am, right? And many of us, to your question, 
you always think that in the master sommelier exam, you're going to drink the most, you know, coveted of brands. And so there it was, um, a $7, you know, Australian, you know, Chardonnay from Yellowtail. And I got to say it wasn't bad, but I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And for that reason, I did, it didn't dawn on me that like that could be a potential in, in this equation. <laughs> wow. So. Wow. Do you remember the wines that you tasted? Um, when you when you passed the oh yeah um, yeah uh, wine one was uh, Pinot Grigio um, Italy wine two was Gruner Veltliner Australia uh, Gruner Austria wine three was Chenin Blanc um, you know Vouvray uh, I don't think it was Sauvignon I think it was Vouvray pretty clearly three was a Grenache based wine it was a blend and uh, it was it was a Chateauneuf de Pop. Uh, number four was a um, Rioja, uh, probably Reserva to Grand Reserva in quality uh, with a little bit of age to it. And then wine number six was uh, Brunello, Brunello de Montalcino. And it was quite young. It was very stiff and tight. Um, it was a younger, you know, kind of bottling, but it was very good. Um, but for that reason, in the color and the shape of the wine, the way it, it, it sits on the tongue, there was a multitude of options that it could be. And I think in the MS exam, there's a lot of those moments. It's not that the wines are so esoteric that only an esoteric palate can get to the conclusion. It's quite the contrary. It can be rather common grapes that we see every day, given a specific year or a producer, almost like a chameleon, you could make a argument that they could be a, a different couple things. They're not so obvious and that's could be like 51 percent and 49 percent yeah yeah oh gosh i mean look at you know bordeaux blends and bordeaux cabernet merlot cabernet francs type type wines at some point they can really taste quite similar um what really separates them it could be a specific year maybe it's wetter cooler maybe it's hotter warmer from uh, a cooler area of the world or maybe it's a uh, a, a cooler year from a hotter area of the world. So maybe it's a cold, wet year from Napa that isn't actually very common. But in this case, it makes you think this wine could intentionally be uh, an old world wine. <laughs> so there's a lot of those moments where you really have to listen to not only flavors, but maybe winemaking practices that are that you're tasting um, in, in making those vintage calls. Even you have to call the, the year, of course. So it's just difficult. You know, sometimes you're, you're throwing a little bit of luck out there. And other times you're you're hoping to God that you're getting really close to um, all the practice that you've put in, and you have to get all six of them correct. You know that this is a they, they've never told us okay specifically, but I can say from multitude of failures that um, you know you need to be at least five of six, and that is I think undeniable. Um, I know that when I passed. Um, I did six of six for the great varietal um, minimum. I think I messed up a couple things here and there, but uh, in terms of getting what's in the glass, I was there. So I was describing it accurately. I got to the right grape variety. In most cases, got all the wine right. But I think on wine number uh, four, which was the Grenache, I actually thought it was Australian. I thought it was a Barossa Valley Grenache. I did not think it was Chateauneuf de Pop. Um, but I talked about it accurately and I told them why I didn't think it was Chateauneuf de Pop. So that was me. Wow. 
Do you think anyone could become an expert taster or is there any sort of innate ability? Yes. Yes. I say that emphatically because I don't think that I'm an expert taster. I think it's something that we have to work really hard at. Um, So much so, Andrew, I would say this. The reason why the test is so dang difficult is because inevitably you meet people who are innately either one or the others. It is very hard to sit there and say, this guy possesses all of these disciplines naturally, right? No, quite the contrary. It's so much more common sense and just what I've seen um, that somebody is a solid bookworm and they are lightning sharp on theory. They can recite (laughs) anything from any region, any producer. They read, they write, they're just all in it. They can't serve a glass of wine to save their life. Or they um, are just not great at tasting. They're okay. They're simply okay. But my point being, it is a learned thing, just like going to the gym or working out. The more you do it, the better you can grow and get at it. So um, it just takes a lot more practice. And you have to recognize where your weaknesses may be. And uh, for me, for instance, I think it was little bits of everything, but it was having good feedback and even having my cherished loved one my wife look at me and say, I think you think you're good at this, but you're not. And having the <laughs> tough love back and just saying, you know what? You're right. I got to spend more time on that and really become so much more fluent than what I think I, I'm, I'm producing. So sometimes it's those hard conversations. Wow. Um, that's, uh, that's impactful. So what's, uh, what's next? Gosh. Um, so I do a little bit of work and just like, I, as a matter of fact, when I pivoted to the MW program, it was an interesting look at wines because it's much more analytical and it's much more written. So no more verbal, no more what is that, what is this. Now it's basically give me a thousand words on what Botrytis is or what um, whole cluster, you know, fermentation specific to Pinot Noir would do to a, a potential wine and why a producer would do it. And I started reading the dissertations that these MW students were producing, and it was really, really inspiring. And I think that it started to make me question what I th- what I thought I knew. Um, and I loved the, the written component. So a lot of wine articles and just writing in general, something that um, we're starting to do a lot more for Scoperta. Um, and digging into the new side, I think anyway, of retail, which is can I put more information in the hands of the consumer to make a better decision about what they're buying. And I think that is something that not a lot of retailers um, are doing. And I think it's a missed opportunity. So I think we need to have better information out there online about uh, what these things, these terms, these regions can symbolize and try to put it in context for consumers. And that's where uh, I spend a lot of my time today. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. So I appreciate you being part of that. With the just a, the master of wines, you get to choose like your own little uh, subject, and you basically produce a dissertation on that area. Yeah, in the final stage of the MW, you can choose to write about uh, you know a subject of your choosing. For instance, it does have to be approved, but many people do get theirs approved, and it doesn't seem to be too much of a hurdle. Um, but it is really interesting. I've even seen some that are people playing music. To, to the wines as they're aging, you know, does that make a difference, right? And these topics that might be almost taboo or just elusive or kind of silly um, be, begin to get some attention and momentum. 
and they are really uh, inspiring. Because you do a work like a dissertation or a thesis kind of paper with this, um, a lot of them do become published. So I think a lot of the MWs do go on to to really have a book out there about a subject, about a field, about something relating to the wine industry, which moves us forward, which um, I'm really um, currently, I, I think is important to me. I have a two-year-old son. I have uh, another one on the way. And I think about my journey in wine. And then I start to now think about what am I going to leave behind or how can I contribute to something? And that seems to be a relevant question for me right now. Wow. Super inspirational. I just wanted to uh, conclude by thanking you uh, immensely for being a part of this. And for I think that people who listen are going to be really inspired to take their wine loving into their own hands and not just... Um, you know, drink what comes around or whatever, but just get educated, read up, taste, and and not get discouraged by th- thinking that you're missing something or whatever, and just just stay at it. And everyone can be everyone can be great. Everyone could uh, be a be a real wine lover and and um, be educated, informed, and uh, and make your moment. Yeah, make your moments with wine. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Well, I know that we made plenty of moments. I I remember many of them that I can still remember or that I remembered. <laughs> but I, we that did. I Amen. Um, I did immediately hey. forget right after the right after it happened. But um, definitely, uh, definitely a fantastic, uh, fantastic takeaway. So thank you so much for uh, for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Love the time. Love the uh, the attention paid. I I, I miss you. Uh, hopefully I can see you again shortly. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.